I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. desire to look up the filmography of one jc shander don't know oh, why yeah. i did that don't know why i did it but i did <laughs> you talk about this like it was some traumatic mistake you made <laughs> it was a weird discovery it was a weird mm. moment mm. for me as yeah. a film fan because i know he had done triple frontier yeah i like that movie a lot it's a did decent like it? movie it's a decent movie it's a little it's got some dad elements to it it's got oh, some it's... dad very very dad mm-hmm. core yeah mm-hmm. yeah to me it's like it's just like a really solid like three star dad movie yeah it would have been on like tnt back in the it's, day that is exactly what it yeah. is it's, it's a tnt movie that's on at like 2 30 in the afternoon yeah. on a saturday but it's kind of extremely well made along those lines it is like it reminds me of like like when John McTiernan was making that shit, you know, in his prime, a really good craftsman. Mm -hmm. And it's got like so many good actors in it who are just underused. It's like stacked cast and everybody just has a few lines. Yeah. This very nineties, you know, action blockbuster. It's just like like. he, it's just, it, he diluted so much. Yeah. Diluted so much by having so many actors in it. But the thing that I Mm -hmm. thought was so interesting was the fact that he did that movie had, before that done one of my favorite movies which was a most violent year i really like that movie mm, yeah and you then... would like that movie <laughs> I, yeah right that is phil my core thing. right yeah. there really <laughs> never mind dad core. <laughs> i like that movie and then i went and looked back at his filmography and i was like wait he did all is lost back in 2013 oh, with robert shit. redford and then i mm. also had figured out that he did margin call which is like a really quiet i've heard movie. that's really good it's really good yeah. it's got zachary quinto kevin nice. spacey 
uh, maybe Stanley Tucci, and it's about the financial crisis. And yeah, it's yeah. sort of like about a fictionalized either Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns. And it's about the decisions that they made that led up to the 2008 crash. And I, I saw that movie like way back in 2011. I was like, oh, this is right, good. right. And just like to think that this guy went from doing a movie like Margin Call to Triple Frontier that just like shocked me, really <laughs> threw me off my game there. Yeah, that's an interesting sort of very gradual, like mid-budget rise mm -hmm. you don't mm -hmm. see that much anymore you know Not at all yeah yeah and yeah you look at triple frontier and that feels like a movie made by a guy who only does action action movies, movies. and yeah. now he's like oh i could slip in a little more dramatic stuff when yep. it's the opposite and yeah. by the way we're going to throw this donkey off of a cliff have it oh the donkey yeah well, yeah i know anyway all right yeah. ladies and gentlemen welcome to goat season we are so happy to have you with us yeah <laughs> This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams both in front of and behind the camera. You know, I was just trying to be enthusiastic, man. I was you just were, trying to follow man. up your energy. The look of disdain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this fucking oh, man. guy. He I'm cannot keep his mouth shut on a podcast. He just can't. Just got it. Terrible. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm your co-host, Phil Mitchell, and along with me is the man whose face launched a thousand ships. That's right. Mr. Alex Sinesi. Good Was to see you, man. Hey, good to see good you. To have you with me. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Today, we'll be con continuing our exploration of David Chase's The Sopranos. Today, we're going to be looking at episode three of season one, entitled Denial, Anger, and Acceptance. What'd you think about it, man? This episode was one of extremes for me. There are scenes in this that I really, really like. Some of the most memorable scenes from the season, I think. Yeah. But like the main gangster plot of it is terrible. Yeah. One of the worst probably in the whole show. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to be honest, man, watching episode two and episode three in quick succession and knowing that like some of my least favorite episodes of the season were still to come. And seeing kind of like just how these episodes had had aged and how they represented the show not having found its footing yet, mm -hmm. it really started to make me question, is this the best season of the show? You oh, know? a crisis of yeah, faith. Okay. I know, so early, like dude. Oh, uh, but Three episodes in and you were like, I don't know about this, man. Well, I mean, I feel like that's the whole thing. We got to at least interrogate does this hold up as the best season or is this just the season that had the full cultural impact? Cause I, I mm -hmm. don't think you can deny that this is the revolutionary season the, that if the Agreed. Sopranos had never had another good season after this, it wouldn't have mattered. The impact had already been made right. on television production. It, the, the golden age had started based on right. season one period, but is it still the best season? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, it's interesting. It's an open question now. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah, I thought um, the first time I watched it, I can't really say that it was my favorite. I, I, re I watched it earlier today, and I will say that I am less harsh on it on a second viewing than mm -hmm. I was maybe about a month ago, I think, when I first saw it or had rewatched it. First saw it, it. on the rewatch. <laughs> yeah, the rewatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right. Like, it's kind of lopsided. It comes mm -hmm. together very well towards the end, um, yeah. but there's so much that you have to get through in order to get to that point. That's kind of like, uh, it feels like fluff. 
feels like some fluff there. It's a plot involving the Hasidic Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And it's one of many examples, I think, across the entire Sopranos run where they try to bring in another insular culture that the show isn't actually about just to sort of create some sort of dynamic, some sort of relief of the insular, very, very like heightened culture of Italian Americans butting up against a different cultural enclave. Mm -hmm. And I think the show almost never does it well. It doesn't do it well. It doesn't. No, it doesn't get it right. Especially in this episode. It's like these characters are very caricatured. I feel Mm -hmm. like they don't have the detail or the sort of they they just they don't feel alive like Mm. the supporting cast of Italian characters who are so detailed where it's like every single just hatchet face you know granite forehead mob guy has such poignancy mm-hmm. or such depth behind their eyes <laughs> and you're just letting like Vinny pastori and uh, tony sirico and all these guys just like unlock such emotional depths that you never thought they'd be capable of but then you come to like these characters and it's it it just doesn't come off well it doesn't, and I think um, it, it reminds me, now that we're talking about this, about when Christopher and Adriana meet Massive Genius. I think that's his name. It's Bokeem Woodbine, and yeah. it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of like, mm, the show yeah. doesn't quite know how to handle it's awkward culture. Yeah, it's very yeah. awkward. That episode um, is super awkward, and I feel yeah. like they leaned into the awkwardness mm-hmm. of it in a way that was a little more thematic Mm -hmm. with this episode it doesn't feel thematic at all honestly it feels pretty disconnected yeah and i don't know maybe because they didn't want to focus too much on like jackie april dying of cancer they Mm -hmm. were like we don't know how much of that we can put in this early before Mm -hmm. it's just a depressing like slow episode but i found that stuff way more compelling honestly for sure I think Michael Rispoli is really good in this episode. That's his best, right? That's yeah. his best, I think. It's, yeah. it, this one really is his showcase. So I think this is the third episode in the four-episode mini-arc. At this point, one of the things I do think that the episode does well is it does ratchet up the tension at the very end. That's what I think it does well. Um, so yeah, the episode um, kind of continues the tension between Uncle Junior and Tony, Christopher, he returns. The suits that were stolen in the previous episode, both he and Brendan Falone. Tony, at the same time, is continuing his therapy with Dr. Melfi, and he's confronting um, his feelings about the death of Jackie April. There's a lot in that, in those scenes, I think we definitely would need to dig into. Oh, yeah. Because I enjoyed each one of those Melfi scenes quite a bit. They're oh. very good. The trick picture. Oh, the, it's great. Hey, asshole, I'm from Harvard. Yeah. What do you think of this spooky, depressing barn so and this rotted good. out tree? So good. Such love a great that. rant. Uh, I really love that. At the same time that Tony is dealing with the death, the imminent death of his friend, he's also being confronted with this um, situation, the scenario presented to him by the Jewish gangsters and having to help out what's the fellow's name i think it's shlomo Titelman. Mm-hmm. i think that's the guy's name yeah, yeah who wants to um, essentially help his daughter get separated get a divorce from her husband and the husband is in the process of uh, essentially it's not is it blackmail would that be the right thing it almost feels like it though he's like saying i'm not going to divorce your daughter unless yeah i think they're trying to draw a parallel with mob methods mm-hmm. in sort of the the very insular orthodox 
Jewish community, community. like the extreme parts of it, where through their own sort of cultural mechanisms, they're putting similar pressure. They're sort of shaking people down in the ways that they can, which just doesn't fully work. As we said, It, it just doesn't feel like they have this sort of organized crime apparatus behind them. In the end, it's, it's a family squabble. Whereas yeah. when the Italian mob steps in, it's like everything instantly becomes economic and they're just about like draining any mm-hmm. business of all of its profits, charging them protection money when they yep. create the threat that, you know, they need to be protected from. It's just a totally different, different thing. And I, I think the correlation is thinner than the show would, would have you believe, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's probably the main, that's the A story there. There's a couple of yeah. other subplots with Carmela um, throwing a fundraiser at the house um, mm. and then finding out a few things about Charmaine, Bucco, oh, yeah. uh, and Tony. Charmaine kills that scene, She dude. does. Oh. Well, I watched it with the wife and she, my wife was just kind of like, oof, like her face just, her mouth fell open when that scene happened. <laughs> oh. It's so great, Yeah. <laughs> She so just good. drops a bomb there. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It yeah. Is. And outside of that, uh, Uncle Junior decides that he is going to resolve some of his lingering insecurities mm-hmm. uh, by taking Christopher to task yeah. and uh, planning an execution along with his uh, second in command, Mikey Palmese. And I yeah. feel like this is kind of like the official introduction to Mikey Palmese, I would say. Oh, yeah. Like we see him in the previous episode, but this is like where you get a sense of who he really is. Mikey, Mikey's great in this episode, Mm -hmm. Uh, Al Sapienza. Yeah. I feel like he's the embodiment of sort of the physical threat that Uncle Junior's crew represents because Mm -hmm. otherwise you don't see a lot of his crew and it's kind of all just old guys hanging around with him, probably talking about like the sports page or whatever bullshit, you know, having coffee, enjoying Mm -hmm. some Werther's originals, you know, (laughs) doing their thing. Mikey is sort of the one really virile, threatening mobster Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. their crew. And I love that they just make his whole deal that he's he's too much all the time. Right. <laughs> he he wants to be this violent gangster character so bad. It's it's great. Everyone's like, yeah, he can't wait to tell you about every fucking cancer cell that yes. he's ever heard of. One of my favorite junior lines ever is uh, when Mikey's talking to him in the restaurant and he's like, if you fuck with Junior Soprano and Junior's like, calm down we're not making a western here right which i love that line so much because it's so indicative of this generational gap you know Mm -hmm. that for junior a western is like the most violent out of control sort of revenge fantasy thing where everything's so lawless and i feel like these days we think of westerns as such a like just trite tame yeah golden age of hollywood doing their action thing it's just so funny to me that he thinks extreme and he thinks like crazy violence and emotions like running over and he's like geez this isn't like a western we're not making right. like rio bravo here man right. calm down you know this isn't shane already. right <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh it's just so good i mean junior's such a wonderful character he's like the best that. he's getting these these references that just wouldn't wouldn't work with any other character exactly what were some of the things that you clocked from the episode the main thing i clocked this episode was directed by nick gomez who Mm -hmm. has had a pretty solid career in the golden age 
he started out doing um, an independent New York crime movie called Laws of Gravity mm-hmm. that had both Edie Falco and Paul Schultz in it. Okay. And wow. when Edie Falco was cast, maybe his name was thrown into the mix. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that she got Paul Schultz cast opposite her for those big scenes in, in college and things like that. And their chemistry is just incredible. Yeah, but, it's great. Uh, Gomez directed after that he did um the pilot of homicide life on the street did yeah. you ever watch that show dude mm-hmm. yeah it's really good really good yeah i i need to watch all of it the first season was incredible yeah but he directed the pilot and a bunch of other episodes he also did oz which was another show from the same executive producer tom fontana mm-hmm. and i think from oz he was in the hbo rolodex and he got okay. this episode of the sopranos he never directed another one which i'm a little surprised about but uh he immediately jumped over to the shield directed a okay. bunch of big episodes there okay on damages he's, he's done a lot and i i think this episode's really well directed you I, know? I think so too i i and really the directing stood out to me on a second rewatch for sure yeah yeah, a lot of the shot choices, the mm-hmm. way that he'll like get into a scene with like mm-hmm. a big low angle sort of wide shot with the camera pushing in, like when they're walking into uh, Ariel's motel. It's yep. a really cool shot, really keeps the pace of the episode up. My favorite bit of directing, though, is probably the crucial scene of the episode, Livia and Junior at Greengrove. Right. And Livia in this scene she's not in the episode much at all but i mean she she just has, has such a huge impact here because she essentially gives junior his marching orders mm-hmm. and she does it in the form of a suggestion and it's it's so yeah. subtly done but the camera work in that scene is totally communicating her power yeah when she says first off she says well christopher you know tony loves him like a son and so do i he helped me put up my storm windows, you know? Mm-hmm. Th- that's the big deal. It's like, mm-hmm. he did this <laughs> annoying, like... Sure for me. Sure. Years exactly. ago. Exactly. And that's such currency to her. It's so funny. <laughs> Favors. Um, but so she says, you know, Christopher, you could use a talking to. And then she sits and shrugs and says, this Filoni kid, though, I don't know him. And yeah. so it's saying, yeah, mock execution for Christopher, real thing for Brandon. Yep. But when she s- says that, she's standing while she's talking about Christopher, and then she sits down on the bed. And if she had just sat, she would be like the camera would be at a high angle looking down at her, which mm-hmm. is always a position of weakness right? in terms of just like camera language whereas what happens is the camera pedestals down with her so that she's always being looked up at at a low end she maintains power through that whole movement Mm -hmm. she says that and that's definitive and i mean it's it's her essentially ordering an execution yeah and i just love how the camera communicates her power through that whole thing and then it cuts out to the wide where it's her sitting on the bed and junior, junior standing, standing over in front her, of her yeah thinking that he has the power yeah it's really he has just been ordered to do something i just i i really like that scene that's a great scene i thought or one of the things i noticed was the scene at the very beginning where Tony goes in to talk with Melfi. And the, one of the first things that he brings up, and he talks about Jackie April and his feelings there, but then goes straight into what's the deal with this painting that you've got out in your waiting room. It feels a lot like the pilot. 
when he's looking at the statue and he doesn't know what to make of it. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at another piece of art and he doesn't know what to make of it. And he's confused by it. And he's really bothered by it. And, and, and Melfi's reaction, I love how she responds, which she says, you know, hey, do you think I'm trying to trick you? And he goes on this rant. You can tell she's insulted because she purchased this painting thinking that it was a beautiful piece of artwork that would, you know, calm any of her clients that are coming into the waiting room. And, and he is completely thrown off guard and is like ratcheted up by its very presence. Like he can't stand it. <laughs> I, I like how you're drawing the correlation with the statue from the pilot. I mean, it does make sense that it's like he sees all of these things in terms of sort of the vulnerability that one can find in a person. That's mm -hmm. how he looks at the world is everyone is just like a vice waiting to be exploited. And so right. when he looks at a painting, he immediately thinks, oh, how is this painting trying to like fuck me up psychologically? So he's trying to coming back me. to therapy. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> right. And it's funny because then he does that later on in the episode when he's with Oksana, his girlfriend, and he sees yeah. the painting that's in her um, apartment and he mm -hmm. doesn't know what to make of that piece of artwork either it looks yeah. kind of like an edward hopper painting almost like it's kind of this empty space in front of a pool i think yeah i think it's supposed uh, to be david hockney it's, is that okay maybe that's similar funny. guy similar tone you know that early modern american isolation kind of yeah feel. he's yeah, just yeah. so bothered by life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So in the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I believe it theorized that there are five stages of grief. It's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then you resolve things um, at the stage of acceptance. Um, and I just thought it was interesting that they left out two of two of the steps, two of the stages, mm -hmm. that being bargaining and depression. Uh, on the rewatch, I thought it was because, oh, that's because Tony Soprano just doesn't do bargaining and he yeah. doesn't do depression. He's in denial about that. And so that's why those those aspects of, of that progression are left out. And then I was watching it today and then I thought, well, actually, perhaps it's because denial, anger and acceptance are what he actually processes in each session with Melfi. When he first goes in and he's talking about Jackie April dying, he basically says, you know what, Jackie's going to beat this. Jackie's going to be fine. So he's in denial about the fact that his friend is going to die. The second session with Melfi is when he blows up and has that really 
ugly conversation um, about her, um, her expertise and whatnot. I mean, he storms out of the episode. And then the last session with Melfi, he kind of comes to terms with the fact that April is going to die. I think it very well could be both of those things being true at the same time. You know, Tony is in denial about being depressed. Um, he doesn't accept that idea. Um, but it could be the fact that the episode really is highlighting each of the transitional stages that he goes through with Melfi. And I think Melfi, she yeah. brings attention to it right before the final montage sequence when she says, you know, hey, do you feel like a thing that has no feelings, a thing that has no emotions? And that is just kind of like, that's a textbook d description of a person with depression, a person who has no emotions because you're just so numb on the inside. I think yeah. that's one way that you could read what she's trying to get at there. It's, it's also a question that I think a lot of viewers would have toward a character like Tony. We're so conditioned to think of this mobster criminal as a figure with no feelings, right. as a figure who's more about driving plot than right. about exploring humanity. So maybe there's a, a meta commentary there as well. I mean, do we just want to go ahead and talk about Melfi at this point? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, should. I mean, she's, she's great. She's a great character. I guess we really can't even talk about her without talking about Lorraine Bracco first. Um, I was listening to her do an interview with Michael Imperioli on mm -hmm. the Sopranos podcast, and I had no idea that by the time she had been a model and had lived in France for some time and had done like commercials and maybe had done like a few, maybe a few films under her belt, like she had already kind of rubbed shoulders with Scorsese and other big time actors at that point. Like I think she was dating... Gosh, she was name? dating Harvey, Harvey Keitel. Keitel. Yeah. yeah. I think he probably got her the audition for After Hours, you know, maybe mm -hmm. just on like a recommendation. And she didn't get the role, but obviously like Marty liked her and held on to the idea of her for Goodfellas. She ends up being nominated for an Academy Award, a Golden Globe. She talks about that experience as though she were still new to the scene new mm -hmm. to acting, very fresh in her career. I think at one point um, saying something to the effect of like, what is a Golden Globe? Like having already <laughs> acted yeah. in this great gangster film, had no idea what a Golden Globe was. Oh, she's um, so great in Goodfellas, dude. She is. She it, is. Because she does project a bit of that new to this world, and it really works for the character, her being mm -hmm. brought into the, the mob lifestyle. But um her chemistry with Ray Liotta is just so good in that perfect. movie too. The part where he wakes up and she's like straddling him with a gun in his face <laughs> is just oh, such an amazing scene. And you know, it's funny, like people constantly, I feel like talk about Scorsese as like, oh, you know, he makes these really macho male driven movies, but he's actually gotten more Oscar nominations for actresses in his films than mm. actors by far like more mm. nominations and more wins and i think her character is just so rich and so well done in that goodfellas came out in 91 1990 1990 yeah. okay mm -hmm. thank you so oh, yeah. 90 and then i think lorraine bracco like she has some other roles they're not particularly notable i know she was in like basketball diaries like that was one that was mm. that gets a lot of attention yeah good movie yeah and outside of that, I think she's kind of quiet up until she is cast as Dr. Melfi, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in people's minds, it was sort of Goodfellas to Sopranos. Like right. she worked a lot there, but I, I think everyone looked at the show and was like, oh, it's this mobster and his therapist is Karen Hill from mm -hmm. Goodfellas. Right. You know? <laughs> and so she had, she had been 
asked or I think initially approached to play the role of Carmela, and she was just mm-hmm. kind of like, I've done this before. Let me play a different character, the educated, the educated therapist. Yeah. Um, and I think she did a really good job throughout the course of the show. Right? It was a brilliant choice on, on everybody's part. I yeah. Think, to switch she, her she, over to that. So Dr. Melfi, I, I had never really thought about how important the character was mm-hmm. to the culture, seeing an educated Italian-American therapist, or excuse me, psychiatrist on screen, um, and a woman nonetheless, like seeing all of that wrapped up into a single character, um, I, ha- I had never put two and two together that way and then realized like, oh, wait, no, this is important. Yeah, it's good representation, yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Not that Italians really need it. Like, come on, you know, <laughs> <laughs> your kids are going to fully assimilate. And in the meantime, they keep going back to like Sacco and Vinzetti, the, the Italian guys who were persecuted and executed. And that's like, uh, yeah. there's a one, you know, incident that's like stuck in their craw. Come on, y'all. You guys have had it easy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. You brought pizza over. Everybody's real pissed. <laughs> Would you say that Dr. Melfi is Tony's most intimate relationship? Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is kind of an emotional affair. Their therapy, especially on his end, quickly starts to walk this line where the intimacy, at least in his mind, is getting rerouted into romantic feelings. It's like a perverse version of the will they, won't they chemistry. Right. The whole time. And I know a lot of people who watched the show thought that Tony and Melfi were going to get together, you know? So interesting. And it's so obviously not ever yeah. going to happen. The show's just way too realistic for that. But they do push that chemistry. I think it's interesting because Melfi on her end is probably more fascinated by Tony Soprano. And yeah. I think as the show progresses, like maybe is intrigued at the idea of having a very famous very dangerous client. I think that is part of the appeal that maybe she doesn't want to admit or doesn't understand about herself yet. I mean, I think by episode three, I remember thinking, why is she still keeping him on her caseload? Like that's episode three. The episode that we're talking about right now, Mm -hmm. I was already kind of like, she should have fired this guy, referred him to someone else. (laughs) Like, honestly, that's, that's, that's what would have happened. Yeah. Um, he'd have blown up in her office maybe once, maybe twice. After mm-hmm. the second time you do that, you're going to get a referral. Like the therapist is not going to say, hey, let's keep on working. They're going to say, hey, this isn't working out. You should probably see someone else. What's interesting to me is that immediately after this episode, they start really leaning into the suggestion that not only is he in this intimate emotional affair with her but that she's kind of attracted to him too exactly starts to come up right away Mm -hmm. after this episode and Mm -hmm. i feel like they were like yep we gotta we gotta start to lean on that so that you understand why she's keeping him on as a client but there's i mean there's something about gandolfini too where he he makes his character's grotesqueries into something really attractive and magnetic Right. Uh, he was so singularly good at that. I, I think I think you kind of see how she was like how she was into him, you know, mm-hmm. because he's he's so dangerous and he's so outside of her experience. And yet also he's this Italian man from like her sort of cultural past, something she probably felt like she already had a clean break with. Mm-hmm. And 
he's just so raw and so emotional and i can see yeah i can see how the attraction came about there you know it's so weird like it's the thing about gandolfini man how you're so special he wore all of this so well you know and people say he was not that guy he was very much more like this sort of light-hearted hippie kind Mm -hmm. of guy who then had to like take on all of this anger and stress and that the role really messed with him personally. He he mm. really had trouble with it. He really stressed out about it and, and was difficult on set because it was so different from him as a person. He felt like he was taking on all this negative energy and channeling it in the part. Um, but that, I mean, that's just so compelling on screen. For sure. For for whatever personal difficulties it caused him and the other members of the cast, it's just it's that kind of thing that you see it on television and that tension just reads so much on screen. His yeah. anger yeah. is is so compelling. And it really drove this whole this whole group of shows. This whole golden age of television was built off trying to recapture that energy. I mean, that's the appeal of so many shows that were, yeah, prestige television. That's the secret sauce, man. Absolutely. It really is. What would you say was the uh, best episode or excuse me, excuse me, the best scene for you? I mean, for me, it really was the the Livia and Junior scene that we talked about earlier. I just, I think the filmmaking in that scene is so compelling and- Nancy Marchand and Dominic Chinese, two of my favorite actors on the show. And it's it's such a great subverting of sort of the way that a mob execution order would come down. It's mm-hmm. two, on the face of it, they just seem like two sweet two elderly, elderly people, people in who, a retirement home. If you never heard them talk, if you never had an interaction with them, you would be like, yeah, oh, a couple of sweet old people. Look at them hanging out. But uh, yeah, they're they're talking about essentially murdering her son's surrogate son, her yeah. grandson in a way, and deciding, oh no, just, you know, pretend to kill him and murder his best friend. But yeah, but the filmmaking was so great. I love those characters. And uh, I think it's a big moment for the show. Is it the very next scene, just the, the endings? montage sequence that's what i think is probably my favorite of the episode it just kind of like pulls everything together you've got meadow who is high on speed giving a performance uh, in front of her entire school christopher gets jumped brendan gets shot in his bathtub poor thing yeah i think it's great and even carmella i think i even like that little moment between tony and carmella where he comes into the auditorium sits down next to her and you know things had been good between the two of them for the previous two episodes because she knew that he was in therapy and then when he sits down next to her she's so upset at the fact that charmaine had slept with him that <laughs> when he touches her hand she just pulls away immediately <laughs> she's not having any Arm. of it. Uh, yeah, I love that yeah. moment. That's so good. But yeah, that that sequence is probably that's that's my standout there. That sequence is pretty awesome. It yeah. it feels very Godfather one doing the montage over something that's supposed to be this representation of Christian purity, except that everything is corrupt and there's just yep. like evil happening in the background that's been wrought by all of these characters. Yep. Um, yeah. And I, I like the way that they subvert it even within the moment. Meadow and Hunter are like so visibly sweating through the performance because yeah. they're Probably. they're tweaking on speed. And Oof. it's like the the innocence that they're projecting is, is bullshit. Fake. And yeah. then their parents who are assured by 
this display of innocence are like meanwhile wrapped up in these other sordid dealings mm -hmm. and we just get these you know moments of violence to underscore that yeah it's a really cool sequence just the uh, whole thing is dirty i i, I love the like sort of milk toast Christian vibe of that particular song and the piano and how that carries over as like the Russians are dragging Christopher to the dock yeah. and it has that that tonal dissonance to it is yeah. is well done. Of course Mikey gets his like cool <laughs> coup de gras line gangster like, moment yeah. hijack bijack and yeah. it's just like you can tell he was saying that in the mirror to himself all day <laughs> like oh i'm gonna shoot this guy so bad and that's gonna be the last thing he hears uh, and he's, he's just so excited about it he's just extra man he really is that guy is on 3000 yes. so yeah that's kind of the entire episode it really pre again propels things pushes things forward turns up the temperature on the story and then it's the kind of the the pin at the pin ultimate episode it feels sort of climactic of mm -hmm. this initial mini arc because yeah. it does essentially end the whole truck hijacking dispute pretty definitively but then the next episode you get tony dealing with the fallout and dealing with junior and so it sort of prefigures the end of the season where they do uh, this structure of having the climax be in the second to last episode yeah. and then the last episode being this sort of extended third act unspooling and resolution. Um, th this feels like a bit of a mirror of it. It's not as strongly formed here, but mm -hmm. uh, it you can tell that Chase likes that rhythm. He yeah. likes the sort of stutter step of big climax before you're expecting it and then a cool down where you really explicate the the collateral damage and the reactions yeah. is it time for name that episode i guess so oh, i owe man. you an apology man <laughs> oh oh man oh dude <laughs> yeah i gotta air some grievances here bro oh, so man i'm trying to do these off the dome you were looking at the episode titles <laughs> Actually, that's not true. That's not true. No, I had written down. I had written down oh. the summary and then written down one. Wrong oh, so this was number. lost in translation. Yeah, that's no. really what it was. Oh, okay. For those who are listening, last episode I had given Alex the summary of a Breaking Bad, a season two episode, which was called Seven Thirty Seven. That is what it was called. Yes, the actual title. Mm -hmm. But yes, but. Yeah, I had I had mistakenly titled it or written it down as 747. Mm -hmm. So Alex, yeah. you're right, man. You had it right. Yeah, yeah. You feel mm -hmm. vindicated? I, I I feel very vindicated, but I know you, uh, you, know, I know we'll you went through all of those stages of denial and acceptance during the last record. It was mostly anger, <laughs> honestly. Right. I got stuck in stage two. <laughs> but yes i've accepted it we can move on now oh, with a, a clean slate and there i feel go. secure in my victory i know you do um All let's right. do three this time three okay i'm only prepared for two I, I can do maybe one on the fly yeah give me a second here um okay so we are in to name that episode first episode or the first uh, clue that you're going to get is this episode of the shield is the only episode for which sean ryan was not present during filming Ooh. And it's also the last episode. Oh, the last episode of the show? Mm -hmm. It's called Family Meeting. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding. Yeah. 
What a depressing <laughs> fucking name for that yeah. episode. Talk about oh. depressing ends of a show. Man. Oh my god. I mean that like, is the, brutal. I, I I know we're both big fans of the shield and I, I think that show kind of gets a bad rap. I think people look at it as, oh, it was just this, you know, extreme sort of torture porn sub prestige show. But I mean, that show was so dramatically rich. It had mm -hmm. such incredible characters. I feel like anybody who actually watched it is like, oh, yeah, that show is top tier. And yeah, uh, yeah man, I think that is the best last episode of any show ever. I, I would say so. It's stand up, by it's it. up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just it. It's the perfect ending to its protagonist where it feels both surprising and inevitable you know mm -hmm. and i yeah. really love that uh vic doesn't die i think everybody yeah. really thought that he would and that that yeah. would somehow both absolve him and damn him that he would be killed and the the ending they came up with him, for, for him instead is just so strong it, it feels yeah. like the perfect karmic you know retribution Justice. upon him yeah for sure yeah for sure uh, i'm sure we'll we'll cover that series at some point i would love to oh me too man ready for the next one let's do it okay all right this season two episode of mm -hmm. the x-files takes place in new mexico and begins with a teenage native american teenager i don't know why i said that twice uh <laughs> finding an alien alien like figure in a boxcar <laughs> uh this episode is called anasazi and uh, that is the season go. two finale if You're i'm right. not mistaken yeah Absolutely. really strong episode two the <clears throat> the box car buried in the uh the desert just i mean such indelible images in that episode and yeah uh, Duchovny's really good in that one dude he's great yeah i hope that that's a show this is a show we can get to at some point too yeah yeah do you think do you think season two is the one to cover <sighs> we'll have so to many. we'll have to you know chop it up off my yeah. about that but uh season two is a contender man yeah it's really strong ready for number three are you are you up for a third let's do it let's do okay. it all right i'm gonna do this one on the fly all okay. right see if you can break my streak here all right so in this episode of the sopranos mm. season two mm. christopher claims to witness a foreboding glimpse of the afterlife Polly grows worried that he's being haunted by those he, he has killed. Tony seeks revenge and brings Big Pussy along for the ride. And Dr. Melfi finds herself in trouble or having trouble with coping uh, with her disgust for Tony's business. Oh, man. That is such a great episode, dude. Ah, just thinking about that episode, man. Now mm -hmm. I'm like, man. Season two, dude. It might be coming <laughs> for the crown, man. Uh -huh. uh, the name of the episode is From Where to Eternity. Uh, there you go. That was the first one that Michael Imperioli wrote, and he he killed it, dude. He really that, did. That episode's fantastic. Guy's um, got chops. Yeah, yeah. I love I love all of Paulie's stuff with the afterlife and that. It's so good. Yeah. Where he's just like. <laughs> He donated to a church as like an insurance policy, essentially. Right. It's amazing. Forgot about that. Oh, that's awesome. I love that yeah, character. Dude. Oh, he's the best. Ugh. All right, man. Well, um, to just wrap it up, we hope you'll uh, rate, review, and subscribe on whatever uh, podcast app you're uh, using at the moment. Do it. And uh, yeah, we uh, appreciate you listening. Thanks. Bye.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.